Welcome to ISM Fellows in Conversation, a podcast from the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The episodes in this series present a discussion between a current ISM student and a visiting researcher in the ISM Fellows program. Each year, the Institute hosts a cohort of fellows who are in residence for one year to pursue interdisciplinary projects and teach at Yale. The following conversation focuses on the diverse research, teaching, and creative work of a current ISM fellow. My name is Claire Byrne, and I am a Master of Religion and Music candidate at the ISM, and I am delighted to be talking today with Dr. Catalina Ospina, a fellow at the Institute of Sacred Music. Originally from Colombia, Dr. Ospina received a PhD in art history very recently from the University of Chicago in 2021, and her book project at the ISM is called Identifying and Subverting Epistemic Asymmetries in the Colonial Andes. It focuses on 17th and 18th century indigenous production of mopa-mopa objects and through them, the ways the colonial structures inflicted injustices on colonial subjects. So I want to give a warm welcome to Dr. Ospino. Thank you so much for being with me here today to discuss your work. Thank you, Claire. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. I am too. Well, let's get started. Um, so first of all, I just want to say congratulations on your recent PhD degree. It must feel like a huge relief um, and a big step forward in your life to have that achieved. Um, and just kind of looking back maybe at your trajectory, what and where were the seeds uh, that were planted in your life to pursue the field of art history? That's a difficult question to answer, actually. I would say it was probably there all the time. But when I went to undergrad in Colombia, art history wasn't a career that you could study. You could take history classes in the art department. But there wasn't, you know, a department of art history. I didn't really grow up knowing any art historians. So it wasn't really something that I could consider as a career. And although I was really interested in art and even in making art, art history wasn't quite there. I'm a very curious person and I actually decided not to pursue a humanities degree then, but I pursued a physics degree. Wow. Because I thought, well, this is probably not something that I'm going to do later in life. So I'd rather do it now. Yes, it's very divorced from art history, but I think that the opportunity that I had to think about materials, about how things are made and interactions, you know, molecules and different forces, it's back there in my work all the time. Like I, I really want to understand how things get done. And that's something that's really present in my work as an art historian. Wow. And so um, where did you need to go in order to... Um realize that art history was a possible pursuit for you? Did you actually leave Columbia? Where did you go? So when I actually, when I graduated from physics, I was teaching uh, back in Columbia and a friend of mine had come back from getting her master's in art history. She studied philosophy in Columbia, but she went and got an art history degree and I think it was Scotland. And she invited me to one of her classes. I started going, uh, you know, just sitting in, in the class and I got hooked. It was a, a class on European modernism. And there's this very strong like discourse in, in that period in art history or from artists, really. But it's this like consciousness about what the work is doing and what the, uh, the materiality of, of the work is, right? That paint is 
canvas and paint and not just the represented thing that you're seeing. And that really got me hooked. So it started there. So maybe, yeah, that was one of the important seeds, I guess. I owe that to her. Wow, that's so fascinating. I wonder if um, in your own background there is art production yourself. Was there painting or was there um, that, that sort of material, you know, embodied work in, in your own background? I, I mean, definitely. I, I took uh, ceramic classes um, at different points in, in life. And I really love getting to learn a medium, right? So it's, it's hard for me to like stay with it. And I don't really want to like practice it long term, but I love to learn how it works. Uh, so I, I, I took ceramic classes. I also took uh, painting classes. And it's something that I would still do, uh, learn any, any technique. It's something that I'm very, very curious about. And I love the really, the embodied experience of learning to work with that material, right? And it's, it's you, you might learn about it, like from reading or, you know, seeing a video or something like that. It's never like dealing with the actual stuff yourself. So that that also probably has a lot to do with my interest. It makes a lot of sense. I think this is a perfect way to segue into talking about the specific focus that you're working with now, which are the Mopa Mopa objects, which are produced in such an extraordinary, were, were produced in such an extraordinary way. Actually, I don't know if they still are. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that too. Um, and just how you became first interested in, in working with a specific focus. So I became interested in Mopamopa objects when I first, I, I was doing my first sort of like a field trip uh, during the PhD. This is uh, in art history. This is kind of like the trip where you kind of like go and try to find a topic for your dissertation, like a set of objects or something that really grabs you. And um, I was going through the Andes. I knew I wanted to work in that region and I started in Colombia, but I went all the way to, to Peru, um, stopping in Quito, in Quito. And I was there and I saw the monastery that had a set up for a sort of like museum display. And it was a, a non uh, bedroom, this little box, you know, decorated with flowers. And it really got my attention because of the way it was reflecting light. And so I got close and I could tell it wasn't painted, but I couldn't tell what it was made with. And, you know, as an art historian, you really develop a sensibility for these kind of things, right? And it was like, this isn't lacquer. Like, how was this applied? It was definitely not a brush, right? And so I was like, okay, I read the label and said, you know, barniz de pasto, mopa mopa, because that's another term that's used, barniz de pasto is another term used for these objects because they are made mostly in the city of Pasto in the south of Colombia. And so I, you know, started researching and I looked them up. I read that in the colonial period, the resin was chewed. And I was like, why? <laughs> it was just like mentioned, but nobody really dealt with it. It kept percolating in my mind. And when I came back from that trip, I would come up to professors and tell them, you know, this object, you know, this was chewed. Why would that be? And people started thinking, yeah, you're right. Like, what would that be? 
you know, maybe there are other things in the region. And somebody mentioned the practice of uh, chewing coca. And I was like, oh, okay, yes. And so I started looking into that, what that practice means and how is it done? Because we talk about chewing coca, but it's really not chewing. You manipulate the leaves in your mouth, but it's really not chewing. It's really fascinating when you look at the dictionary, at the colonial dictionary in Quechua for the different words that had to do with manipulating objects in your mouth. They're completely different verbs. But when they're translated into Spanish, it's always chewing, 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 like chewing corn, chewing coca, chewing, you know, a hard thing. There's really no uh, an equivalent, but there is a very rich vocabulary in this language for, for talking about things that are done with the mouth. And so that was part of it. You know, I started really trying to, to place this practice within the context of production. And then thinking, what could it mean to know a material with your mouth? I mean, we understand what it means to like touch something and we relate to that, right? When we think about clay, you know, how pliable it is, the temperature, all of these things are, are telling us things about the material and we work with that information. So what would it mean to, to know it, but with your mouth? And what could the implications of, of having that knowledge be? It's fascinating to me. Every time I think about it, <laughs> I get excited. It is completely fascinating. You said the first question you were asking when you came back from this trip was, why? You know, why would they chew, to use a very general term, I now realize, <laughs> um, the, the, the resin? And, and have you gotten closer to the answer to that? And maybe you can tell us even a little bit more about how it then is applied. Um, just so I think I'm, I'm understanding, I, I've actually seen pictures, but perhaps our, our listeners won't have seen pictures of it. Um, how, how it actually ends up, how does it go from the resin being chewed in the mouth uh, um, onto the object? I think I just asked you about three questions. <laughs> so let me get to, to the first one. So when I started uh, thinking about why, and I, you know, got some of the sources that that talk about it from the colonial period. The sources sort of like assume that the chewing is necessary because there's there must be a chemical reaction from saliva. But then the practice of working with this resin is still going on today. There are artisans and pasta that have kept the tradition, and they don't chew it at any point. Beyond that, the process is very similar to what we have described in the colonial period. And when you compare the objects in terms of the finish that, that they get, you, you can tell that the practice really hasn't changed much except for the chewing. And that made it even more puzzling, right? So there's no need to do this. Why? <laughs> Why then? Um, and then I got to to actually work with some artisans in pasto. You know, and we talked about many things. I saw them work with it. I asked them about the chewing. They don't chew it anymore, but I chew it myself to try it. And it's so hard because it's soft. The resin is soft. I mean, it, it softens when it's heated, but it loses the temperature really quickly and it hardens really quickly. So it hardens really quickly in your mouth. So that made it even more puzzling because it's it's not like natural to do it. There must have been something going on there, right? So that's one of your questions. And I and, and maybe I can get to why later. But the resin, uh, how it's worked is it's heated in boiling water and it gets soft. And in that state, they can stretch it and they form this uh, sheets resin that 
are kind of like similar to maybe like clean wrap. If they are not colored, it's kind of like clean wrap. But they could add color before stretching. So a given artist has a couple of this stretched resin sheets in different colors. And then they cut little pieces or, you know, really whatever they want to cut and build their image on, usually on, on wood, wooden surfaces, kind of like collage. So you cut and paste and they don't need any any other sort of like adhesive. The resin is adhesive also when they warm up the, the wooden surface that they are going to apply it to and then put the resin and it adheres to the surface. So this is just to open up this uh, field of larger discourse about um, how these objects operated within or the or the makers of the ob- objects operated within the colonial context. So um, they these objects may have been treated by scholars from a, a more conventional art historical standpoint. I feel that you are taking a much different focus and much different lens on these objects that involves um, how they were made, why they were made in this particular time period, um, in this particular time of, of colonial oppression. Can you talk a little bit about that? There hasn't been um, much scholarship on, on these objects, but there are some art historians that have studied these objects. And I mean, because the, the field of art history, it's so centered on the visual, right? The analysis that usually gets done about them and about many things that we do in art history is what we call visual analysis, right? So we try to figure out what we're seeing What are the things that we're seeing representing? Are there models for this from other sources? How is, you know, the image being constructed, right? So it's mostly visual analysis. And in the case of these objects, uh, what scholars were trying to figure out is like, where are the motifs that we're seeing coming from? Because these objects were made for the European market, the European and Creole market. And they don't fall into, I mean, visually, they don't fall into what we would consider traditional indigenous aesthetics. Sometimes people ask me, are you sure that indigenous people made this? Because they don't look indigenous, and I'm uh, using air quotes, to them, right? They don't conform to that aesthetic of like pre-Columbian material that we might be familiar with or have an idea of what it is. And so that was the focus of the the scholarship that was done. And one of the interests things that people were were seeing them was that they had Asian influence. It wasn't just uh, European influence, but Asian influence. And in colonial history, in colonial art history, that was a very interesting topic that started kind of like to pop up, I will say maybe maybe seven years ago. Uh, we started to to find that those elements and we were able to trace them, how they came up and ended up uh, being such an important part of, of colonial aesthetics. And, and that's, of course, really, really interesting and important. But yes, I'm trying to look at those objects or to understand those objects from a different perspective, right, which is the way they're made and how what I'm trying to do here is... Uh, to think, or really what these objects got me thinking about, is to think about the process of working with a material and how understandings of the body might alter how you engage with certain material. And I think that's what's going on in the Mopamopa technique. It wasn't chewed because it was necessary. It was chewed because in this culture, they oriented the body towards the world 
in a particular way. And the mouth was very active in that sort of like encounter with the world, right? So they use it not only for, for the Mopamopa technique, right? We have a way of preparing chicha, which is a corned beer, basically, that uses the mouth as well as an as an uh, fermenting agent. Uh, but there were, they also had other ways of doing that kind of process. This was just one of them. Um, but they kept doing it, right? There's there's coca as well, what we were talking at the beginning, the way it's processed in the mouth, but it's not really chewing and it's not ingesting, certainly, right? And then in medicinal practices, the mouth is also very prominent in, in the way it acts upon the sick person. You know, the, the shaman or medicine person really uses the mouth blowing, sucking, chewing herbs. So it's a very active organ, let's call it, because it, it uses it, all of the mechanics of the mouth, the ability to speak, the ability to, to chew, probably saliva as well, the thermal capabilities that the mouth has. So it's, it's really a culture that, that uses the mechanic or used because that has obviously changed a lot, the mechanics of the mouth a lot to interact with the world. Using the mechanics of the mouth to interact with the world. That's a wonderful, <laughs> I'm thinking of that, that in a whole different way. Would you say there's meaning made or meaning making through the use of the mouth even though it would not necessarily be necessary to use the mouth. Getting to that is incredibly hard, right? Because we don't have any sources that would tell us the perspective from indigenous people. So what could it mean? It's really something that, that we cannot discern at this, at this point. And I, I don't know that there would be a source right, telling us that. But what I think is that when we know the world in a certain way, it changes the way we understand it. It's sort of like it's processed in a way that, or maybe it's processed in a way that gives us certain understanding. For, for this particular culture, processing the, the resin or whatever material it is that, that they're doing through the mouse, they're getting a different grasp of what the material is. And I think to get at the meaning, we won't get at the meaning, but at least we can point to what it me- meant, right? I mean, it's even possible that this wasn't articulated as something, as something meaningful, right? I mean, when we think about the way in which we engage with the world, we rarely think about the meaning of that. So, I mean, for instance, I notice as a Hispanic person a lot how different cultures need more or less personal space. And that's something that we are used to it, you know, uh, the, the amount of personal space that we need, and we might not necessarily think about it very consciously. But it affects profoundly the way that we interact with the world and with others and the way we understand it. But it's not something that we're, you know, ascribing meaning consciously all the time. So this might be something just like that. But I think what's really important and why we should be thinking about this is because even if the image looks just like it would have looked without the chewing, just because it was made in this way, it was already transferred and processed in a very indigenous way. And I think there's meaning for us in recognizing that. Yep, that makes a lot of sense to me too. The example of personal space in you know between different cultures um, makes me think that there should be a category of 
not meaning that gets translated into words, but feeling meaning, <laughs> felt meaning that, that is, you know, nonverbal, you know, and, and we can't think of meaning in the same way when we are thinking about kind of embodied practices. Um, so I have one more question for you. Um, so the subtitle of your book is Identifying and Subverting Epistemic Asymmetries in the Colonial Andes. And I'd like to just go into that aspect of your research. Can you describe for us the structures of colonialism operating in the area in the 17th and 18th centuries, how they affected the Mopa-Mopa um, objects or um, the indigenous people who were creating them? Obviously, colonial structures affected indigenous people people enormously, right? They constrained them and, you know, just were uh, so detrimental for these cultures in so many ways. And we understand that, the, the devastating effects of that, to a certain extent, I think, very well. But what I think we still need to work on is on the ways in which the knowledge that was recorded about indigenous cultures, how the colonial structures affect that, the sources that we've got. And one of the things in, in particular in relation to Mopamopa objects, for instance, is that we know they're made in the city of Pasto, right? Pasto right now is in the south of Colombia. The moment those kind of like country boundaries didn't really make any sense. Uh, Pasto was as connected to what it's now Colombia to as it was connected to what's now Ecuador, it was really this in-between space. But it's really always described in the sources as a very isolated place, like in the middle of nowhere, really hard to get, just, yeah, again, in the middle of nowhere. And then you get this production of objects that is really cosmopolitan. These artists are looking at an Asian stuff, European material of different sources, right? They're probably looked at manuscripts, prints, uh, obviously material culture similar to that. And so there's a mismatch there, right? Like, because if they were, had been produced like in Mexico City, we understand how cosmopolitan Mexico City was in the colonial period, or even an important port like, you know, Cartagena in the north of Colombia, but not some place like Pasto, right? So there's a, there's a problem there, right? How, how could it be? But when you think about the indigenous perspective, it really wasn't isolated at all. It is in, you know, in the, in the highlands, but it's, quite close to the Pacific coast, if you go down to the west. And it's also quite close to the Amazon, if you go down through the east. And this tracks, although they are described by Europeans as impossible, like incredibly hard, the weather, uh, everything's just terrible. For indigenous people in this area, they didn't see it like that. And we don't know this in the sense that it's not like described in the sources, but we know they're going up and down all the time. So in that sense, that is an epistemic asymmetry because they are describing this area with a particular framework and understanding that doesn't apply to what indigenous people, to the way they understood that terrain. So that, for instance, is an epistemic asymmetry there that I kind of like identify, right? And I hope that would help us, you know, be aware of this problem in, in, in dealing with the sources. It's so fascinating, starting with the object itself. In a sense, you are expanding that and looking at the geography and seeing that from a different lens and from a different perspective in, in addressing this. Really, really fascinating. 
Well, I would love to speak much longer, but I think we should wrap up our discussion here. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, discussing your work with me. It's such a such a pleasure to learn a little bit more about such a specific and fascinating area um, of art production. <laughs> and um, I hope you have a wonderful year here um, and much progress with your book project. Thank you, Claire. I, I really love uh, talking to you. Thanks for having me. For more information on the ISM Fellows Program, please visit ism.yale.edu forward slash fellowships. Please join us again for more episodes of ISM Fellows in Conversation.